Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast by Skift Meetings, the podcast for curious event professionals who are embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skift Meetings. In this episode titled Winning on Support, I have the pleasure of speaking with John Kazarian, the CEO of Excel Events. The main topic we cover is this idea of taking the stress out of working with event technology. We talk about how it's important to really understand the stress that event professionals go through. We talk about the importance of referrals from all sides of the industry. We talk about not neglecting the people who've never been to in-person events and who may actually prefer virtual event experiences. We talk about how many events take place without any sort of purpose and how that is an issue. And we talk about how any event should only really tap into 20% of the event tech features available on any platform. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the Event Manager podcast by Skiff Meetings on our website or subscribe to your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Event Manager Podcast by Skift Meetings. Uh, on today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Kazarian, the CEO of Excel Events. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, John, we've we've known each other for a few years now. Um, we, you had you you were on one of our events not too long ago, so that was that mm-hmm. was a lot of fun, and we connected in that way. Um, but uh, I'd like to actually know a little bit more about you. I don't think I've ever had the kind of full picture. And, and, and for anybody who's not familiar with you, could you give us a little introduction of, of, of who you are and how your journey in this kind of world of events? Yeah, I had a, I guess you could call it an unintentional journey into events. And uh, it sort of started in college. I, you know, I was hosting events of 100, 200 people here and there for a variety of reasons. And uh, doing that more and more frequently after college. And then about two years after school, my cousin uh, at the age of 17 got diagnosed with cancer. And at that point, you know, thought about things I could do for her, considered running a marathon, but realized that, you know, it's top decent at hosting events and could raise, frankly, a lot more money that way. So um, I was 24 at the time, decided to go down to the aquarium in Boston, put my credit card down and uh, rent out the entire space. I had to sell 185 tickets to break even, basically to be able to pay my bill. And we ended up getting 840 people to that first event. And that led to raising $65,000 for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which we were thrilled about. But going into that event, realized that in order to do that, in part because of the layout of the venue, in part because of the demographic of the audience, we were going to need to run the auction and the raffle digitally. So looked around for solutions and frankly, just couldn't find anything that was either affordable or frankly good. So your mission wasn't just to get people there, but then to find the best way to raise money while they were there. So it wasn't just a ticket sales uh, problem, let's say. It was also a, a raffle and a kind of raising funds in that way. 
So I think the ticket sale problem actually started my initial call frustration or concern with event tech. Uh, we were using one of the one of the well-known ticketing providers at the time, uh, public company now, and I was just petrified to the point where I had printed off eight eight different decks of the attendee list just to make sure nothing would go wrong at check-in. And I think this stemmed because of the number of issues and frustrations we had just using event tech, preparing for this event. I had never hosted an event of nearly a thousand people before. And just, you don't sleep on the days coming up to the event. It, it, I mean, you're just, there's, there's a thousand things that could go wrong. Your brain is constantly running through every one of them. And you would think that technology would be there to make life easier, not create additional concern. So that sort of started my concern with, you know, event tech in general. And looking around, I'm like, okay, if we're using this very prominent ticketing solution and having this kind of issue, what are the issues we're going to have with the fundraising technology? So after vetting several, just decided, okay, like, let's focus on exactly what we need and just build our own. I had a bit of a tech background, worked with a friend who, who had even more of a tech background, and we did that. And it worked. And we got great feedback from Dana Farber Cancer Institute, from the attendees, and and this was for that, for that first event. Yes, exactly. I, I will say that certainly did not help me get sleep going, you know, going into the event. Uh, but but it worked and it worked really well. And we, you know, we raised more money than we thought we were going to. And that um, and how long how long did it take you to actually kind of, you know, have a, a minimal viable product, I guess you would call it right, because you went live with it. about a week, about a week, okay. a very long week. Yeah, <laughs> like like a hackathon kind of week. Yeah, exactly. Like a hackathon week while planning the first 1,000 person event you know, I'd ever hosted before. So it was a, it was a pretty- uh, Just pretty you or was there, was there a team working? No, so we had, um, we had a committee that we'd put together. It was a bunch of just friends who all, you know, for one reason or another, they had been impacted by cancer in, in their life and everybody was really just passionate about the mission. And um, I, ended up being the person focused on the technology side of things. Again, you know, I think because of my personal interest in technology, but fortunately we had other folks that could help with the rest of the event facilitation and marketing. Okay. And then you ended up doing this multiple times. How did this sort of become a business in a sense? Yeah. So after this first event and realizing the pain we had gone through, we basically felt like we needed to offer this out to other folks like ourselves who are in a similar position. And we were also getting, getting demand from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for it. So decided to launch a company around this and started building that nights and weekends, was working full-time in another job um, and continued to do this for a number of years. And eventually the feedback we started to get from organizers was that they wanted everything under one roof. So they wanted the ticketing and the payment processing all within the same technology solution. So we began to focus more going down that route. And as we started to expand our registration offering, we then started to focus more heavily on for-profit events. So festivals, concerts, trade shows, uh, you know, and whatnot. And was so, this already called Excel Events at that point? Did that's a different it, name? It was, yeah. We, we actually established the, you know, the legal entity about a month after that fundraiser. Okay. So yeah, we... we 
Yeah, I was just like, so you started off very much with this kind of narrow focus on fundraising and you had registration yeah. and the kind of um, raffle side of things, right? Or the kind of mm -hmm. fundraising, right? And I'm guessing that was sort of text message based or how, how did that side of it work? Yeah, it started off entirely text message based. And then we started to expand into introducing more of a web a web offering as well. People could participate on mobile from mobile web, but also uh, on desktop. And then obviously the administrative side to being able to manage and load in all of your auctions, your raffle items, managing registration, check-in, et cetera. Okay. And then so so why this kind of pivot towards festivals and for-profit events? Was that already kind of more the, the business side of you going, okay, this might be a, a bigger slice of the pie or what, what was attractive about that market? Yeah, there's a couple of things that were attractive. I mean, one hand, the events were a lot larger. But the other part of it was that we wanted to be working with more professionals as opposed to like PTO groups. Mm -hmm. We wanted to be working with the folks who were hosting these events more frequently, who really understood the challenges and we could learn from them. And one of the things that we did from day one was just, you know, when you think about events and event professionals, there's just few industries that have that sense of urgency, right? Like, yeah, fighter pilots and, and, mm -hmm. and ER doctors, but like, most other industries, you don't spend three months or a year building an experience that culminates in three hours. It's just, it, it, nothing else operates that way. And when you're putting that experience together and investing all of that time and energy, and frankly, your job is on the line for it, you need to get it right. And you need to know that your vendors are there to support you. So we recognized that from day one. And as a result, decided that we were going to win on support. So even in the early days, I'm, I remember like times where I'd be on the highway and we get a message on our intercom chat support and I'd have to pull over like to the breakdown lane in order to respond to somebody on a Saturday night because they had a question during their event. And that culture that we built and that reputation with our customers just it led to this really powerful feedback loop where they thought of us as a partner and it wasn't, hey, you know, I'm going to submit a question and get a response in two days. It was, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to message somebody and I'm going to get a response back as if I'm, you know, typing in Slack, right? Like real time. And, and that just led to people sharing feedback that allowed us to innovate so quickly. So as we did that, naturally the people that we wanted to be getting that feedback from were people who had bigger and bigger events, bigger budgets, et cetera. Um, and then what that turned into was, okay, we had these great relationships. Folks wanted us to be able to facilitate more of the experience for them. So things like session management and sponsor and exhibitor management for conferences. So we had been going down that path throughout, path throughout uh, 2019. And um, for contact perspective, we were we ended up closing out 2019 at about, uh, about 375K in revenue. So we were obviously still very small. Uh, again, bootstrap business. I was working full-time in another job. It was looking like we were going to be able to get to a million in 2020 in revenue. And I was planning to go full time as we started to approach that number. But then obviously in you know, March of 2020, the world kind of shit the bed. And at that point, with all the canceled events, the refunded tickets, we ran out of money. And uh, I, was, I was very lucky in that uh, I was able to, frankly, convince my father to invest 75 grand out of his retirement so that we'd have a chance to pivot. And this is at the bottom of the stock market in March of 2020. So not, not a very good time either. Uh, but we did and we pivoted and we had just been having so many of these conversations around 
what's the problem that folks need to solve when everybody's locked in their house? And we did. And we, we, we made that pivot. We frankly started pre-selling it. We hosted our first virtual event uh, in May of 2020. And things just took off, you know, as you know, as you've seen what's happening in the industry. Uh, we ended up closing out 2020 and having done about uh, 3.3 million of revenue. So uh, 10x the prior year. Uh, things obviously continue to accelerate throughout 2021. And it really just reshaped where we sat and, and positioned ourselves. But it all boiled down to this concept of we can make life easier for event professionals. And as you look at the world today, event professionals just, they have so much riding on their shoulders. They had their teams reduced throughout 2020. Most of those teams have not rebounded to the size they, they're, you know, they were at in, in 2019. And on top of that, CMOs, CEOs are expecting the same level of in-person experience with these virtual experiences complementing that. The workload has doubled for event professionals. And if technology isn't there to assist them, it's just going to be, it, it, it's going to be unbearable. No, that's a, that's a very fa fair assessment, I'd say. Um, I just want to go back to your, you know, extremely quick support and then the kind of, you know, that, yeah. that, that you're offering. Were you able to scale that? You know, because you're talking, you know, 3 million revenue, I'm guessing 10x number of events, etc. How do you keep that close relationship with, with your clients? And were you able to and how did you? Yeah, it's our second biggest team only to engineering. It was just a decision we made, you know, we could have we could have spent a bunch of money on on marketing, uh, or somewhere else. But to us, the right thing to do was to really focus on that customer experience and recognizing that that meant, yeah, we wouldn't be bringing as many events in the door. But our reputation is on the line with with every one of those events and every stakeholder within the event. It's not just the the admin, it's every one of those attendees, it's every sponsor, every exhibitor, every speaker. And if we can ensure that we're there to support the event organizers in a way that that experience is going to be something that goes flawlessly. Those other stakeholders are going to come to us naturally when they want to host their event. And, um, and that motion worked for us. It, it played out very well. And, um, and we stand by that. And I, I'm making an assumption here, but tell me if I'm wrong. It, it's a hard thing to explain to, a to, um, to someone who's not a customer yet, or it may not be as obvious to them, but I assume then you get a lot of referrals and people saying, hey, these guys really took care of me. So would you say most of your business comes through referrals of people that feel, you know, really supported by your team? Almost entirely. Yeah, yeah almost okay. entirely. That and people in, you know, in the, I would say probably less so today, but in 2020, one of the biggest channels for us was, uh, was exhibitors. We focused you know, again, I talked about the different stakeholders, but we focus very heavy on that exhibitor experience from the beginning, ensuring that virtual exhibitor booths were not just microsites, that there were opportunities for those exhibitors to actually engage with, with leads, with other attendees and, and generate meaningful interaction for their business. And by doing that, it proved to those exhibitors that there was a channel here being virtual events that they could adopt. And it just, it led to, uh, just over 15% of our, of our new customers were previously exhibitors within an event. So that, that flywheel was really interesting for us as well. Okay. Well, let's, let's jump a little bit ahead. So let's come to, 
you know, 2021 was also a great year. 2022, we are now recording this in early June. Um, you know, from what I've seen, and, and you tell me what you're seeing on your side, but from what I've seen, we now have a big return to in-person. Um, mm -hmm. There is an appetite for hybrid, although a lot of people find hybrid quite challenging and, you know, not really sure what to do. Um, what are you seeing on your side? It, it, uh, you know, how are you seeing 2022 right now? And and maybe give me some examples of, of who's doing it well or who are you supporting in a way that's actually working well? Because I find in the industry right now, there's a little bit of a kind of anti-technology feeling like we can get back in person. So let's just do an in-person event and not have to worry about this. Like, how are you dealing with that? Yeah. So we hear that mantra all the time, right? Like anyone who spends time in this industry on Twitter, it's, it's unavoidable. But I think there's a, a, a huge neglect because the, the loudest voices in the room, the loudest voices on social media are those people that do want to return to in-person. They were the people that were going pre-pandemic. But we just neglect this massive audience of folks who never went to events in person. There was somebody who was petrified at the idea of being in a convention hall, at being in a conference without knowing anybody, maybe being forced to talk to somebody that, that they don't know. That just so uncomfortable and, and it becomes unaccessible for so many folks. So on one hand, I, you know, I, I think that's a, a worthwhile point that needs to be considered and considering the doors that virtual opens. But to get back to your question, uh, yes, we're very much seeing a return to in-person. We're excited about that. We're a company that started with in-person events, so it's our bread and butter. Um, you know, everything from the badge printing functionality to mobile app for attendees, admins, lead capture on-site, gamification, all of that stuff. I mean, that is, that is part of our DNA. Um, but as we think about moving forward, it's really about thinking about that, that holistic event program. It's not just that in-person experience or not just that virtual experience. It's how can we create something that involves our entire community and provides opportunities for every potential attendee, not just the ones that are excited to get back to in-person or the ones that are scared to ever go to an in-person event. Um, in terms of who's having the most success today, I mean, it runs the gamut. It's, it's really the people who are having the most success are the ones who are putting the effort into it. And that's, that, that's true regardless of, of where the event takes place. I mean, we're seeing across the board that in-person attendance rates are way down. And with, with sky-high travel costs and hospitality costs right now and shrinking corporate budgets, I, you know, I fear that that's only going to extend. But in terms of who's having you know, actual success with it, with the globalized nature of the world today, there are so many organizations that need to do something like host a product launch. They want to create buzz, excitement. You could send an email about a new feature, but nobody posts a screenshot of an email on LinkedIn about their excitement. No, they post a, a screenshot of your event, of your announcement, of how that thing is going to impact their life because you got people together to share that experience. And when you can create that, that point in time experience that everybody can get behind, that's how you can create buzz. And the people who get that and realize that really just, they, I mean, they see immense success from it. Couldn't agree more. I think that's, I like that. Nobody posts a screenshot of, uh, of an email on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an easy way to explain it. Um, but going back to sort of, you know, the boom and of your team, et cetera, I, I imagine the team grew over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling about, 
you know, keeping the team and maybe even growing the team. Is that is that a realistic expectation for 2020 and going forward? Do you feel like you can, you know, pick up the in-person side and, and that can take the, the the space of the business that you had from the from the virtual side? Yeah. Well, I mean, the big difference between virtual and in-person is that when you're hosting a virtual event, you're the entire venue, right? And for that reason, the revenue that the technology platform derives is going to be greater than an in-person event experience. Um, we had probably the most incredible tailwinds that you know, I'll ever have, have the fortune of in my career over the past 18 months. What we're facing today is not headwinds. It's the new reality. It's normal. And I think that just means we're moving back to a normal growth rate. So I don't expect acceleration the way that we had it throughout 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Um, but as long as we continue to be on the forefront, continue to evolve, adapt, innovate, we're going to be in a great spot moving forward. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So let me pick on a little bit more of this kind of, you know, what do you see um, in your view? What makes a really good event? You know, what, what makes an event that's okay, you know, and, and what makes an event that's really great? And if you have any sort of advice on how to map events from, from that good to great, I'd love to hear that. There's, there, there are so many events that take place with zero purpose. They never define the purpose before they start planning their event. You know, the same is true of any form of content, right? Everybody talks about SEO, but nobody takes a step back and establishes what is the purpose of this content we're creating? Where in the funnel does it live? What is the message that we're trying to convey to the attendees, to the readers of this content? So the events that, that I've participated in, that I've seen that are the most successful, they know why they're there. And that can mean a variety of different things. Um, you know, that question, I, I sort of serve it back. It's a very different question if we're talking about in-person or if we're talking about virtual. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy with, with either takes or both if, if you want to go there. Um, I think it's, it's I, you know, I, I think I hear a lot of tech companies talk about um, what is possible with the features. Um, yeah. And I like to challenge that a little bit because I also feel that um, planners... And, and attendees can get lost in features. You know, if you turn on everything that your app could do or your virtual tech can do, you're probably not going to have the reaction of, whoa, great, I'm going to check out everything that this thing can do. It's actually probably going to be the opposite. So I really like to hear, you know, practical kind of advice on, on how to navigate between the purpose of the event and then kind of creating that experience for people that will really deliver on that purpose. That's a... <laughs> So a great point you raise around features. I think that uh, you know any modern robust platform today, a given event should only tap twenty percent of the features of that platform. But as you as you as an event organizer are buying a technology solution, 
you want the breadth of features because if you create the same experience using the same features every time, then you're not creating anything unique or exciting. So by having the feature set as part of your event program, you can create varied experiences throughout the year. And that's where the breadth of feature set comes in. But again, 100% to your point, simplify, simplify, simplify. Every experience does not need to be everything to everybody. And the world of virtual in particular gives us the opportunity to have much more segmented events. In, in the in-person world, we need to get so many attendees there to legitimize the cost of hosting this event. You know, every incremental attendee brings down the, the, the marginal cost. In the virtual world, it's just, you know, the, the, the marginal cost is just so much less. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. Uh, I'm not sure I answered your question, though. No, I, I mean, it's such a wide question. I mean, I'm happy to go in any sort of direction. But I mean, let me let me talk to you a little bit about, you know, the future we're talking about this new yeah. normal in person. Uh, let's take in person events uh, as an example. Um, let's let's ignore the hybrid component now, if you will. Yeah. Um, what do you think events will look like in, you know, 23, 24, 25? You know, of course, technology is going to develop in all sorts of unpredictable ways. But do you have an idea of what you expect an event in the next like few years, how you expect those events to use technology, you know, because we talk about the sort of new normal and they're going to be using technology in a better ways. And, you know, and I'd like to see that, but sometimes I, I struggle to have a clear picture of what that looks like. Is it just that more people are going to be using the apps or are they going to be using them differently? Do you have an idea of, of what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, certainly have my opinion there, and, and we we ran some uh, some surveys and and uh, other mechanisms capturing some other opinions on this. And what we've seen is, is about a three hundred and fifty percent increase in the number of events that expect to be using a mobile event app in twenty twenty two compared to twenty nineteen. Technology has just become so much more of the norm today. Uh, your average attendee now knows what they can expect out of an event app in a way that they had it in the past, and um, that proliferation just makes people a lot more comfortable using it. And when it does become the, you know, the expectation from an event organizer's perspective, again, it becomes the norm. The other part is that organizers are learning how to use the data. In the past, call it you know, pre-2020, the idea of data was compelling, but we didn't know what to do with it. Um, and in, on top of that, there's been, there's been this big shift in, in the role of an event manager, event planner, event organizer within organizations over the past two years, where there's been this meshing with, with demand gen. At the same time, Apple's had this war with Facebook, Google now joining into it, and they're just trying to kill cookies, right? So you've, you've probably heard the term cookie future before. The, the reduction in third-party cookie tracking means that the digital marketing mechanisms that we knew over the past 14 years become less relevant going forward. And as we think about how we replace that, it's a matter of using first-party data. The mechanisms that organizations have for capturing first-party data are you know, things like form fills, ebook downloads, white papers, et cetera, even webinars. But all you really get is that, okay, XYZ person downloaded this PDF, and that's the end of the story as far as you know it. When you think about somebody interacting with your event experience, even if it's just 90 minutes, 
you get infinitely more data. Maybe you get a thousand different data points that you can use to profile and segment your audience and create more personalized follow-up with those folks. Where there's an opportunity for technology to play a bigger role is the education amongst the demand gen team, marketing ops, and the event professionals putting on the event, figuring out how they can team up together to really make the most of all of that information that's becoming available to them and how events can ultimately become the biggest lead gen channel within an organization, if they're not already. I mean, events make up about 25% of B2B marketing budgets. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a massive investment. I mean, this, this is a huge opportunity. It sounds very promising. Um, I can, I can sense event professionals thinking, yeah, of course, data is great, right? You get all this data from events, but how do they, how do they become experts at managing this data? Is that something that, that your team also helps with or, or what, what's your advice to event professionals to kind of, you know, see the value, but maybe don't quite know how to manage all that data coming in and know what to do with it. I, I actually don't think it's their job. Should stay focused on creating and maximizing experiences. If they do that, the data will come in, Let the teams that are experts on the data do just that. And we've actually found that marketing ops people have been far more involved in the procurement process just over the past six months than they ever were in the past. So if you can find a way to partner within your organization to bring the right people into the mix, yeah, let the tech company sell them. You know, let them explain it to them. Yeah, you want to be there, you want to know, you want to learn, but uh, data manipulation, data movement, that, that shouldn't be your responsibility. Now, that said, there's a lot of information that you can gather that you can use to enhance and perfect the experience that you're putting forward. But that is sort of a different question than how data can be used for uh, you know, demand gen within, within a business. One area in particular that I think there's a, a so called a lack of, of usage with data is just the real-time nature of it. It's optimizing the experience on the fly. And this could be in-person or virtual. But mm -hmm. if you know that somebody has looked at a particular speaker who's speaking in the afternoon session three times, yet they log off after the first session in the morning, you know exactly what you need to follow up with that person to get them to log back into your event. And people aren't planning ahead for that. They're not thinking about, okay, here are the sequences we're going to use. Here are the triggers that we're going to um, base these sequences on so that we can increase engagement throughout the day and keep, keep people coming back. They just send blanket messages out. XYZ person is coming up next. You get one of those every 15 minutes, every half an hour for every virtual event you log into. You stop opening them after the third email. Make it personalized. Make it relevant to that person. And... I mean, you make an excellent point there. I still feel like a lot of event professionals or even marketing professionals be like, I'd love to, but you know, it's, it's so overwhelming in some ways. Are there, are there places where you can kind of exchange recipes for these kind of things, you know, because you, you, that was a good example you gave, but I could see there being, you know, almost unlimited options and sort of sometimes also assumptions that you make, right? You're like, oh, that person checked out that speaker three times. Therefore that means X but maybe actually they used to be friends in kindergarten or, you know, really like there's so many different things that might be like, oh, actually that isn't why they checked that out. 
I'll tell you what, if any of my kindergarten friends are speaking, I want to hear them. <laughs> exactly. Right. But you're probably not going to, I don't know, invest in the company or, or, or something like that. Right. Like it, it's going to yeah, be maybe not. But look, so much of marketing is assumptions. Mm. Right. Nothing, nothing can have in marketing can have perfect attribution. Frankly, I mean, that in itself is, yeah, go ahead. I'm just kind of, but do you think it's always worth taking that risk in a sense? You know, because if you do the blanket emails, yes, they're really annoying, but you're, you're not making as many assumptions, right? So if you get, if you get a message or an email that made an assumption that's wrong, could that be a risk in itself as well? Cause you're like, oh, they think they know what I want, but actually they don't, right? Like, could there be a sort of negative reaction to those kind of things? I think the blanket emails are assumptions as well. You're assuming that that keynote speaker is the most interesting one to your audience because they're interested in you because you followed them on LinkedIn for the past three years and they post some good content. But maybe three quarters of your audience follows the, uh, you know, the, the next up speaker, whatever it might be. At the end of the day, we're, we're, we're always making assumptions. And um, to the extent that we can use data to help help provide some guidance in those assumptions, I, I think it's very worthwhile. And, and yeah, that's where testing comes into play. To your point around recipes, uh, I frankly have not seen any great recipes for that. I have seen a number of organizations that once they build out those campaigns for one event, it's very easy to reuse them going forward. So mm -hmm. it's a, sort of a one-time lift and then you're just kind of filling in or even you're using dynamic fields already. So it's, it's just good to go. Exactly. So it's sort of like do your homework and it'll pay off in the long run. It just helps to right. kind of have a bit of a kind of process. So you talked a little bit about being bootstrapped. Um, I, I, I assume you, you're still bootstrapped. So the whole you went through the whole journey bootstrapped. We actually we actually raised a little bit of money. At, I say a little bit, you know, given the amount of money that's flown into this, this industry. But we raised some money at the beginning of this year. Um, for you know, a couple of reasons, one of which is that being a bootstrap company, we, we didn't have a board before then. And there was somebody who uh, we were just really excited about and wanted to get involved in the business. And this was an avenue to do that. And then you know, obviously, capital uh, generally, I said generally, doesn't, doesn't hurt. Um, so it made sense for us to do that. You know, to, to speak to the future, will we raise? Maybe. But right now, we don't need to. And that's not an area of focus. We'd rather, rather focus on the customer experience and moving at a pace that, um, moving at a pace that we feel like we can deliver the experience that our customers deserve, that we can keep it personal and continue to innovate and evolve and have those conversations. We don't ever want to get to a point where we're using messenger bots and you don't hear back from us for even an hour you know, never mind a day. That's just, we don't think that works in this industry. It, you know, it might work in an email marketing solution or a CRM, but it does not work with events. Yeah, it's, it is actually quite refreshing to, to hear that because I think the, the issue of scaling and kind of, uh, you know, if you will, the, the SaaS model or whatever you, you, you kind of feel would be better for scaling and better for investors isn't necessarily what's better for the users, right? So it does sound right. like you're keeping that very focused. Yeah, I mean, even to that point, we are able to sell one-off event pricing. And a lot of the companies in our industry, be it because of investors or because of an intention to go out and raise are forced to, to deliver essentially just SaaS pricing. 
it makes the barrier to entry very high. And for us, our belief is that if we can, if we can get you in the door mm-hmm. with a lower barrier to entry, you're going to come back to us regardless. And the data plays out to show that. Um, but yeah, we don't have to appease investors with the metric in that regard. Okay. So what about your, your roadmap, anything you can share, uh, in terms of sort of like unpivoting or at least, you know, a sort of a, a newer reality where in-person events seem to be the more popular ones and, you know, how are you thinking of adapting to that? Yeah. So we're, uh, we've shifted a lot of our engineering focus to our in-person offering, um, you know, things like, like, uh, expanding ticket printing and kiosk mode session check-in, uh, a lot of gamification functionality for in-person events. So we certainly have shifted a lot of focus over there. At the same time, we're continuing to invest very heavily in everything that we can do to make life easier for event organizers, to provide tools so that they can do more with, with less personnel. Um, and in the next, next uh, month or two here, we're going we're gonna to be releasing some pretty cool functionality uh, related to specifically that topic. Very cool. Look forward to, to hearing more about that. And in terms of kind of challenges up ahead for the industry, um, you know, obviously COVID was a huge challenge, um, but I'm guessing that, that, that you can see other challenges up ahead. I mean, we talked about data uh, and, and, you know, the usage of that. Are there any other challenges that you're seeing that, that you know, that, that are going to kind of hit the industry that, that you think we, we should be concerned about? The one I'm most concerned about right now is the economy. Uh, on, on the whole, if we continue to have rising prices, um, coupled with shrinking corporate budgets, it's going to just be hard to get people to travel for events for in-person events. And at the same time, we've already seen a massive reduction in the labor force in the hospitality industry. If, if the hospitality industry goes through another hard wave for those reasons, I'm just worried about what it could look like after that. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're seeing it today where hotels are getting overwhelmed when a large conference rolls through, they don't have the staff to have 90%, 95% occupancy in the hotel. So that is one concern. Um, and I say it's, you know, obviously more at the, at the macro level, um, at the more micro level, I don't know if this necessarily qualifies as a concern, but maybe it's, um, an uh, unconventional opinion. There's a lot of companies out there that position and market themselves as like creating television quality broadcasts using their browser-based broadcasting solution. The reality is most people never really accomplish creating a television quality broadcast because you're competing against somebody who went to school as a full-time producer who inevitably has far more tools at their disposal. They've been doing this 12 hours a day, their entire career. You're asking somebody at your company to invest countless hours in learning to do this kind of production. And then for the first time they're actually ever doing it live is during your event. So people think, okay, I'm going to save money because this tool has this, you know, live production functionality as, as part of it. Um, and, you know, I say this, we do too, but when I look at the events that are most successful, don't ask somebody at your company who you're paying a high salary to to go learn how to do event production. Just have a video producer do it. You're going to get a better outcome and it's actually going to cost you less money. And I think people just don't, they don't realize that. And uh, it leads to a lesser experience for attendees. 
Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Um, I think a lot of people invested myself, you know, I invested a lot of time in learning and buying equipment and doing things. And, and ultimately, I'm rarely the one that's actually producing an event, right? I kind of, you know, I think I have six different types of lighting available or something like that. And I've just discovered, actually, if you just have one decent light that just lights you up well, that's it. Right. You, know, you just get a good feed going through and that's enough. There, there's no point in having all the other six lights around. Right. There. Focus your effort on getting great content, great speakers, putting a really solid agenda together, thinking about the attendee flow and the mission of your event. Mm -hmm. Outsource the production. That makes a lot of sense. So I have a kind of related question for you. Um, if you could change anything in the event industry as you see it today, um, what would that be? Uh, and I guess this may be one of them, but do you have any other things that you'd like to see the event industry change in the way it works and, and how events get kind of put on? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. It's like, do you There's... have three hours to, to kind of go through all the details, right? <laughs> I know, it's like, where do, where do we... Where do we even start with that one? Um, but any kind of bugbears that you have? Because that sounded like a, something that you'd been kind of noticing for a long time in the industry and, and can, can definitely help people just kind of break out of that routine. Yeah, I mean, no, that, that, that certainly is just one point of, of general frustration for me. Uh, event professionals are just some of the most dynamic people. I mean, if you look at what they've gone through over the past two years and then just thinking about the years ahead, like it's a continuous shift and involvement and people are learning on the fly and trying new things which is really cool to see um but we need to stay nimble and we need to be looking for areas that there are improvement like you know like you just asked and um in the world of of virtual that's certainly one of them um i think one misconception is people think about hybrid just from the perspective of what does this mean for yeah, you know, the virtual audience versus the in-person audience. There's a neglect for the impact of investing in the production, the video production, from a remarketing per perspective. What is all of that content going to do for you going forward? Um, the other, this is just a gripe with a lot of events, but probably the biggest ball drop I see, the most common one with events, when everybody's all hyped up about your event, that is the best possible time to get them to register for your next one. Offer them, offer them a crazy discount, 75% off, whatever it might be. Get them to register because let's say it's an annual event. You now have this advocate who's already committed. They've already paid. They are going to sell your event for you. Take advantage of that. Yeah, I think that's a great advice. And I, I see a few kind of high profile annual events that you know, we'll offer sort of two, two for one ticketing and things like that sort of, uh, you know, as the event closes or things like that. And, and there's no speakers signed up or anything like that. There's no information on the website, but you could still buy tickets. And it's like, why not offer that? Because that everybody's attention is at on that event at that moment. But, but it doesn't have to be. I, I couldn't, most people buy the new iPhone without watching the keynote, right? Yeah. When you build a brand around your event, your attendees know that it's going to be good. They know you're going to get high profile people to speak at that next event. They know it's going to be worth their time. They're willing to take that risk. I am. Exactly. That's yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's, it's a really good kind of nudge in the right direction. You mentioned content quite a few times. And so I wanted to just pick your brain around the 
you know, you also mentioned event planners or event professionals should sort of focus on what they do best and that producers do that sort of thing. Do you think the same thing applies to content? Because I'm seeing this big focus of, okay, events are really great sources of content and all kind of associations and corporates want to build this kind of library of content based on event sessions. But there's also a set of skills when it comes to adapting content, to organizing it, to marketing it, et cetera, that may be kind of different than the set of skills that event professionals have. Do you feel like that should be the role of event professionals? Or is that also somewhere where you should outsource to someone who understands content and how to kind of do all that? Yeah, uh, completely agree there that it should be outsourced to the content team. One of the, the biggest flaws from a content perspective I see is that they take the long form content, the entire, entire segment of a speaking session, and they just put that out there. You, you need to invest the time to chunk it, get the talking points out of that content, and then repurpose that. Without that, you're not going to get anybody to watch the long form content, or you're going to get a very small portion of folks to do so. Um, so where you do make those investments, instead of just dropping it all into a massive library or YouTube channel, like, or you know, in most cases, leaving it on the platform for people to come back to, make it more accessible to folks. And if you do that, you're also going to be able to reuse it for marketing your next event. Um, and you're going to drive people back into that content. So, and, and in your view, do you need to do that like as quickly as possible? Or is it okay to, you know, if you don't have a big team to be like, okay, we're going to take a little while to do this, but then when we release this, it's going to be in a, in a kind of a nice format. I think you should be dripping it. So you don't, you don't want to drop it all at once. If you, let's say you're hosting a two-day or a three-day event, by, let's say the event starts at 9 a.m., by 4 p.m., you should have at least three 30-second clips that you can publish on social. Okay. And that's still a great way to get people into day two. Okay, so still during the event, so you're still kind of um, suggesting a very quick turnaround for the editing, not something that's going to take like a few weeks to do and it's only for promoting the next event. No, no, you need to have some of that content snipped immediately. And it doesn't, that doesn't have to be time consuming. That's not hard to do. I mean, in terms of learning how to use tools, like anybody can learn how to snip content. Loom has that built into their thing. Upload it to Loom, snip out the couple seconds you want, throw a banner image on it, post it on social. Like that's easy. Um, but you don't have to do that with every session. Just grab a couple of talking points. You know what people are talking about. You see it blow up in the chat. You're going to see people screenshotting and post it to social anyway. So you know what content you need to grab. Just take that. And then on the days and weeks following the event, go through every session and continue to chop that up. But uh, it, has to be, it has to be consistent. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I tend to agree there. And, and from my experience, the challenging part with that is planning ahead to do that. Because it's like you're watching the content live, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did that? And then if you haven't planned ahead to do that, it's very hard to suddenly pivot and like, okay, I'm going to go and edit this now. And there's like a million other things going on at the same time. But when you're developing your run a show, you just have to have somebody whose job that is. The same goes with the re-engagement email campaigns and the social campaigns. Like by noon, this first session has to have the 30-second clip developed exactly. for it. So it's that idea that you should outsource or at least make sure you have enough resources to have someone dedicated to that, right? It can't just be the right. same person kind of suddenly going, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll go, I'll go and do a quick edit on that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you are working with a video producer, it, it's likely that they'll have the resources to get that done for you. 
you might have to, you know, obviously they don't know your content as well as you do. So you might have to provide a little bit of guidance on what's the, the message that you want to convey, what's the really exciting talking points, but they'll handle that for you. For sure. I think that's really good advice in particular in this kind of hybrid virtual in-person mix where we're not really sure which, which bit of which is going to be the most relevant, I think. Things yeah, like well, that and that carries okay. through for in-person and virtual. It's the same concept exactly. there. Yeah, and the promotional side will always be online, essentially, or mainly online, right? So all that content is, is always important. Exactly. Yeah. Anything that you'd like to share about the future, your future vision of events? We've talked about this already, but is there anything that you have sort of clear in your mind that, that events are going to really kind of change or, or is there going to be like any major shifts ahead that, you, that you're seeing that maybe others aren't? Yeah, I mean, it's our belief that, that events, well, the term, the word itself is inherently talking about something that happens as a point in time. And it's our belief that um, the community model moving forward is less so about building like an area for people to come and post together, but it's about building a community of bringing people together and thinking about your entire event program. So uh, going forward, we think that programming is going to continue to expand that there's going to be more opportunities for your audience to come together, um, that people are going to be adopting solutions that make it easy for them to do all of that and to, frankly, build personas and really understand their audience and what type of content is most interesting to, to all of them. At the same time, and we're seeing this today, demand gen marketing ops folks are becoming a lot more involved in the event process because of the access to data and because they don't have the other channels they used to have to capture that that information. Um, so those are two parts of it. And then just from our perspective, like, yes, we care very much about helping organizations to deliver ROI, to generate revenue, drive growth through their event programming. But just as much, our goal here is to make life easier for event organizers. If we can, if we can help them get an extra 15 minutes of sleep the night before their event, because that's one less thing they have to worry about, then we've done our job. I like that. I think a lot of event planners will will be happy to hear that and kind of like that the fact that you've experienced that and you can see that that's always a concern uh, for them, no matter it how is. impressive the technology is. Yeah. John, great to chat with you. Um, I want to kind of conclude by asking you the question we always ask at the end of the podcast, which is for you to recommend uh, someone uh, to have on the podcast. And I would go one more, uh, one forward or one extra ask for you, which is to uh, any questions that come to mind that we should ask that person? We just published a post on the top influencers in the event industry. Um, but one I would highly suggest that you bring on is Catherine Frankson. And I would ask her quite a bit about event marketing. She is very much a guru on that topic. Um, and it's something that everybody has an opportunity to continue to learn on. Love it. Yeah, I think we've talked quite a bit about event marketing anyway today, and we could definitely expand on that and continue the conversation. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, and uh, good luck with everything. I think it sounds like you have some exciting plans, and I look forward to seeing them uh, come to fruition. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on.